All right. Good morning again. I hope when you came in this morning, you had a chance to pick up a worship guide. Um, on the back of the worship guide is a place uh, where you can take notes as we move through the sermon this morning. I'd invite all of you to grab your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in a chair um, around you or under a chair around you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you are more than welcome to take that home as a gift from us to you. Uh, we as a church uh, have been walking through the book of Acts. We took a little bit of a break from the book of Acts, and we are today back in uh, the book of Acts. You'll see actually at the bottom of your worship guide uh, that next week we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. We typically will put the scripture passage at the bottom so that if you want to read that ahead of time, you'll kind of know uh, where we're going with the message. Uh, you'll also notice that uh, there are no sermon notes on the worship guide this week, so you're on your own. The, 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 the uh, notes will be on the screen and you can take notes as we move through this morning. Like I said, we're back in the book of Acts. And I uh, want to remind you of a few things, one of which is uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 are the words of Jesus that drive the whole narrative that we read in the book of Acts. And here's part of what Jesus said to his uh, apostles, to his disciples as he's about to ascend back into heaven. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. And so we walked through uh, earlier this year chapters 1 through 7. And in chapters 1 through 7, it's all about the disciples sharing the gospel and being witnesses there in Jerusalem. So that first part of that verse is fulfilled in verses, chapters, I mean, 1 through 7. And then when we get to chapter 8, um, or actually I should say at the end of chapter 7, we see that the first Christian martyr is killed for his faith. Uh, Stephen is killed for believing in Jesus. And there at his execution is a young man by the name of Saul. And we find out that Saul uh, approves of the execution. And then we move into chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we see that Saul begins to ravage the church. He's starting a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. He's the ringleader of it all. And he's going house to house and dragging Christians out of their homes and taking them under arrest so that they can be tried for being a Christian as well. And he's on a rampage, as we see there at the beginning of, of chapter 8. And then uh, we also find that because of this persecution, all of the disciples, except for the apostles, began to scatter. And where do they scatter? They leave Jerusalem and they go to all of Judea and Samaria. And so we see the gospel in chapter 8 begin to make its rounds to Samaria and to Judea, which is the second fulfillment of those words in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So now the story is going to begin to make a turn in chapter 9, which is where we are today, and we're going to see that the message of the gospel begins to make its way to the end of the earth. But before it makes that journey, God has some business to take care of with this man by the name of Saul. This very Saul that's been persecuting the church because we're going to find out that Saul is going to be chosen by God and you know him better by the name of Paul, which same God, just a Hebrew name and a Greek name, but God's going to use Paul as his chosen instrument to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning and into the next coming weeks and months. Um, so let's look at Acts chapter 9. We're going to see what it means to be chosen by God. 
In Acts chapter 9, I want us to start with verses 1 and 2. It says, but Saul, so here we are with Saul again, he's still on a rampage. It says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, which is a way to refer to uh, followers of Jesus, those who are following the way of Jesus, he says if he finds any belonging to the way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we're going to pause for just a second. So we see that Saul is still on his rampage. He's still out trying to, to uh, gather or round up the disciples of the Lord in order that he might take them in as a prisoner back to Jerusalem. He has an intention of, of, of uh, completely um, ravaging the church or, or stopping the church. It's his desire to b- make a, a, a stop on the church of God. He, he sets off to a city called Damascus, and I, I want us to look at the map real quick. Um, on this map, you're going to see Jerusalem, which is down here towards the bottom. You see this arrow. He may or may not have traveled that exact route, but he headed to Damascus right up here, which is in Syria. So he's leaving Jerusalem. He's u- leaving Judea. He's leaving Samaria, and he's going 135 miles to Damascus. You may think 135 miles is not very far. But you must remember, he does not have a car, nor does he have a bicycle or a train or anything, right? So it's going to take him a week to get to Damascus, all for the purpose of capturing those who follow Jesus. A lot of commentators will point out that this is happening about one to three years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he is trying to stamp out the church. And so we see him on this journey to Damascus. But on his journey to Damascus, everything changes in his life. Let's look at verses 3 through 9. Verses 3 through 9 says this. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, and here's what the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And when he says Lord here, it's more along the lines of sir, like respect. Like there's a voice out of heaven, it's got to be something important. So he's saying, Lord, who is this? And here's the response, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days Saul was without sight and neither ate nor drank. We can see that this is the beginning of Saul's life radically changing in an instant. It says in Scripture that suddenly there was a light that shone all around him, and when that light shone so brightly, it literally blinded him. He fell to the ground, whether he was on a donkey or a horse or whether he was on foot, he fell to the ground and was blinded and could see nothing. The reason that this light shone around him is because Jesus was appearing in all of his glory. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's got all kinds of light that will will cause uh, Saul's attention to be uh, captured. And then Jesus asks the question, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Anytime you see a name used twice, he's trying to get his attention. It's important, it's imperative that they have this conversation. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul finds out it's Jesus. And the reality that we see here is that Jesus so identifies with his church that he says, whenever you persecute the church, you're actually persecuting me. And so then the conversation goes on from there. And Jesus tells him, go into Damascus and do what I tell you to do next. The account tells about some companions that were traveling with Saul. Uh, They were traveling with him because I'm sure he needed help to round up the Christians and bring them back. But in this account, they are there for a couple of reasons. First, they are there to uh, identify that this legitimately happened. Like this is not some kind of inner crisis. This is not some kind of hallucination. It literally happened because it says that the folks that were with him saw it. They didn't really understand it. They didn't hear everything. They didn't understand everything going on. But they were witnesses to the fact that it took place. And then they were there secondarily because they had to lead Saul into the city by his hand because he is blind. So they led him into town. And there he sat in humility for three days. Says he sat blind for three days. He neither ate nor drank. No doubt he's thinking about a lot of things because he was going to Damascus to capture those who followed Jesus, whom he thought was dead, and he finds out that Jesus is actually alive. Jesus grabs his attention, blinds him, redirects him all the way into the city. He's no longer coming to capture people, but he's there to hear what Jesus has to say to him. No doubt he did a lot of soul-searching and contemplation as he sat there. He was confronted by the living Christ. And because he was confronted by the living Christ, everything he thought he knew about himself changed. Because he had been confronted by the living Christ, everything he thought he knew about God was radically changed. So we're going to kind of keep diving into the scripture to see what happens. Let's look in verses 10 through 19. So he's blind for three days, and then now we find out at the same time something else is going on where God's at work in the life of a disciple by the name of Ananias. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he immediately said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision Sorry, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and 
taking food, he was strengthened. So here we see that Saul is praying, and he has a vision that a man by the name of Ananias is going to come and see him. At the same time, God gives a, Jesus gives a vision to Ananias and says, Ananias, I have a task for you. I love his immediate response to Jesus. When Jesus says, Ananias, he says, yes, Lord, here I am. He was anxious to obey the Lord. And then he had a slight deviation whenever the Lord said, I need you to go see Saul. And he goes, oh, hold up, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I've heard about this guy. I know the harm and the evil that he's done. I know he's here on a purpose to, to capture us. And no doubt, if I go there, he may try to arrest me as well. But I love what we see in verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus basically says, no, I need you to go. And here's why I need you to go. Because I have chosen Saul to be a, a, a vessel or an instrument to be used by me to carry the name of Jesus around the world. And as soon as uh, Ananias hears it, that is sufficient enough for him. And Ananias hops up and goes and does what the Lord says. So he's got an attitude of obedience. And then the Lord reassures him and he goes and does what Christ has told him to do. So he goes and finds Saul. Do you notice what he says to Saul when he sees him? He says, brother Saul. You're like, why is he calling him brother? Are they related? No, they're not. Why is he calling him brother? Because the term is typically used whenever in Scripture, whenever a fellow believer identifies another fellow believer. And I love the fact that Ananias took the Lord at his word that Saul, who had come to ravage the church and arrest people like him, has been radically changed, that Saul is trusted in Jesus as his Savior, and so when he goes and sees Saul, he immediately identifies him and welcomes him into the family by calling him Brother Saul. And so there is a great amount of work that the Lord is doing in Saul and in Ananias. And then we find out that Ananias lays his hands on Saul and because he lays his hands on Saul and the Lord uses Saul, I mean Ananias in this way, he says, Jesus has sent me to you, Saul, in order that you may see again and also so that the Holy Spirit may fill you up. And immediately it says he was healed and was able to see again. And while it doesn't say it specifically, we know that the Holy Spirit filled Saul in that moment. Immediately he was healed and chose to be baptized. See, Saul's story is true. Saul's story is amazing. And we can learn from his story, but what I don't want us to do is just to look at Saul's story and go, isn't that neat that God did that in Saul's life? Rather, I want us to see what God did in Saul's life and acknowledge that God wants to do the same sort of thing in people all over this planet and repeat it in other people's lives. So what do we see in this story. There's three things I want us to see in this story. First of all, we see God's amazing grace. We see God's amazing grace. You see, God's grace is the only way that we can be made right with God. Grace is a free gift. It's not anything you earn. It's nothing that you do. And the reality is this. Saul thought he was earning his way into a right relationship with God because he was obeying the law and he was zealous for God. But the reality is, in this moment, Saul found out that it's not his works that bring salvation. It's not his works that make him right with God. Rather, it's what God has freely given to him through his grace exhibited in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. 
And I said a moment ago that even though Saul was blinded, he saw new things and he found out new things about himself and about who God is. He found out that he was a sinner and that he was in need of salvation and the only way he could be saved is by trusting in Jesus, the one he had been persecuting and believing that he brings salvation. So we see God's amazing grace show up in this moment. What Saul experienced that day was that Jesus is alive. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. How else could Jesus appear to him? So he found out that Jesus was alive, and he found out that Jesus was pursuing him, and that Jesus had a purpose for him, and that Jesus' grace was sufficient to forgive him of his sins in order that he might be made right with God. And so we see an amazing amount of grace come out in this story. As he sat there for three days, we don't know whether Saul was fasting. It doesn't say that he was fasting. He could have been. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but we know he was praying and seeking the Lord. And so no doubt, from beginning to end, God's grace is permeating, per, permeating, I can't speak clearly, permeating everything going on in Saul's life. It's God's grace that started the process of salvation. It's God's grace that brought salvation. It's God's grace that gave him the Holy Spirit. It's God's grace that turned him from who he had been into a man of God. It's God's grace that you and I need as well. You see, it wasn't Saul's obedience to the law or his zealousness for God. It was God's grace. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this conversion, this salvation experience of Saul is the most absurd thing that you could have thought of. Here is Saul, the number one enemy of the church. Here is Saul, the church's persecutor. Here is Saul, the one who's not only persecuting the church, he's persecuting Jesus. And because of God's amazing grace, not anything Saul did, but because of God's amazing grace, he turns from the church's persecutor to an amazing church planter and missionary. Now, I know I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. The rest of the book of Acts is going to point those things out and tell us the rest of the story of of Saul's life as he begins to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here came Saul, he came wielding power, and here he sits knowing that he is actually powerless and hopeless without Jesus Christ. He's been broken. He sees his need for a Savior, and he trusts in Jesus and the amazing grace that comes in and through Jesus alone. As amazing as Saul's conversion is, the reality is every single salvation is just as amazing. You see, we can't say, well, Saul was the chief of all sinners, yet he says that he is. The reality is all of us are the chief of all sinners, right? All of us are sinners. All of us are destined to an eternity in a place called hell, separated from God forever, short of God's amazing grace that brings salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Without God's grace, there is no salvation. And in those of us that are followers of Jesus, it's not only grace that saves us, it's also grace that sustains us in our walk with Jesus on a daily basis. You don't ever outgrow the need for God's grace. You don't say, you know what, I'm saved by grace, and I was a wicked sinner, which is true, and I've been saved because of what Jesus did for me, and now I can kind of go about my life and do my thing. No, the reality is I need God's grace in every waking moment. 
And actually, I need God's grace in every sleeping moment as well. We are desperate for God's grace. I want to ask you to reflect on a couple of things. The overarching question is this. Have you personally been impacted by God's grace? You may not have been driving to Dallas and a light shone all around you and you were blinded and swerved off the road and Jesus audibly said something to you. But the reality is this, if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, just as he initiated his salvation through his grace in the life of Saul, he did the same thing for you. So have you been impacted by God's amazing grace? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, don't go another day without trusting in his grace. What about those of us that are already followers of Jesus? Are we living for Jesus? Are we trusting in the, in the grace that saved us to sustain us as well? Is your life foundationally set or grounded in God's amazing grace? I found this quote this week by Paul David Tripp that talks about how important grace is for all of us. Here's what he says. No matter how deep your theological knowledge is, no matter how comprehensive your biblical literacy is, and no matter how extensive your ministry experience is, you are still in need of God's amazing grace. We all need his grace. So not only do we see God's amazing grace, but right in tandem with that, the second thing I want you to see is we see radical transformation. You see, the one who saves us with his amazing grace also transforms us into his likeness and to his image after salvation. Jesus transforms those whom he saves. You see, Saul's life is completely different as a result of this encounter or experience with Jesus. He's not the man that he was. All things have passed away and all things have become new. You see, before his salvation, Saul was a brutal, bloody man. He was dead set in his effort and attempt to completely stamp out the way. He was callous. He was self-righteous. He was a bigoted murderer with a mission and threatening the church. This was a man that you and I, in our own strength, would never want to see come to know Jesus because he doesn't deserve it. That's what we would think, right? Without going into a whole lot of details... I was sitting here worshiping this morning, and I was reminded of some excitement in my house last night. From 1.30 to 3.30, three different people rang my doorbell, and one of those times involved a man that seemed to be attacking a woman. I got two hours of sleep last night, which is part of why I'm not speaking very clearly. But in my flesh, don't get me wrong, if the man was committing a crime, I hope that he experiences the result of that crime, right? Right? But at the same time, that man is just as in need of God's grace as I am, and I'm not more deserving than he is. And whenever this grace comes into our life, may our lives be radically changed. So after that salvation experience that Saul experienced, who does he become? 
The new man of Saul is he's a humble man. He's yielded to Jesus' plan to carry Jesus' name around the world. This is a man who is saved and transformed by the grace of God. He went from a persecutor that had a letter from the high priest that supposedly gave him authority, and he walks out with a mission that's been written by Jesus himself and sent out on a mission from Jesus. How much more important to be sent out on a mission from Jesus than on, a, on, a, on an agenda that a high priest were to give us? Everything that Saul or Paul did, said, and wrote from that moment on flowed from his encounter with Jesus. Guys, we must never write off anyone and say they are beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. And here's the reality. We don't know whom the Lord has chosen for salvation, and therefore our responsibility is to go and preach the gospel to everyone and let him sort out the details, right? You see, God can take the hardest sinner and turn them into the greatest ambassador for the kingdom of God. This week I was reminded of a close friend of mine, a friend of mine from Tennessee. His name is Terry Wiseman. He was in MD Anderson this summer battling cancer. I've known this guy for almost 30 years and his family. His daughter, Laura, was in my youth group many moons ago. And when I knew he was in MD Anderson and the prognosis was not anywhere near favorable, I wanted to get down there and see Terry. Thank God I had that opportunity to do so. At the age of 70, just a few weeks later, he passed away. But here's what I want you to hear about my friend Terry Wiseman. You see, when I knew him, he was a good man who worked hard and provided for his family. He worked 60 hours, 70, 80 hours a week at the Goodyear tire plant. He did everything he could for his family. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't go to church with his family. He would have given God lip service, but he didn't really know Jesus. He wasn't saved. But God began to do a work in his life. That started with the miraculous healing of his daughter, Laura, who had brain cancer. And then all of a sudden, brain cancer was gone. 25 years ago, God began to prick his heart. And then 13 years ago, at the age of 57, after years and years of his wife praying for salvation, Terry Wiseman finally shows up at church, and he listens to what God's saying. And in a revival service 13 years ago, Terry Wiseman was radically saved. A man that was very rough around the edges, that would throw a few cuss words out here and there, or maybe a few more than a few more, and would do all kinds of things that would enjoy the idea of partying. Jesus radically changed Terry Wiseman's life 13 years ago at the age of 57. You know what God did with him? He turned him, to a, him into a youth volunteer in the youth group in Troy, Tennessee. You know what else God did with him? He turned him into a deacon about six or seven years ago. God is in the life-changing business. It's not just in the life of Saul, Paul. It's in the life of my friend Terry Wiseman. And because he was trusting in Jesus as his Savior and walked it out, he's in the very presence of God today. I reached out to Laura this week, and Laura wrote down this, these words about her daddy. Here's what she said. When my daddy changed, she's talking about his salvation experience. When my daddy changed, he changed. The transformation was beautiful in every way. He used every opportunity. He's 57 when he came to faith. He used every opportunity to talk to others about Jesus. 
He wanted everyone to know what he had been missing for so long. When he got it, he got it. He always had a loving, giving heart. He worked hard for us. He gave us his all, but here's this. In the end, he gave Jesus his all. He once said, they used to talk about me because I drank beer, and now they talk about me because I love Jesus. It's a life that's been radically changed. See, when God's amazing grace saves us, it transforms us. My question for you is, has your life been completely transformed by God's grace? Could your family, could your friends, could your coworkers write similar words, or is your life almost identical to what it was 40 years ago when you came to faith? My question is, if there's been no transformation, then maybe salvation never came to your life. Maybe you need to reevaluate that. You see, there's too many Christians walking around virtually unchanged by their encounter with God. It is impossible to truly encounter the living Jesus Christ and walk away unchanged. Is your life being transformed? I'm not asking are you perfect, but are you being transformed by God's love and therefore you truly love him and begin to love those around you? Perhaps this morning, Perhaps this afternoon you need to take some time and repent of a lack of transformation or, or ask the Lord, have I ever really trusted in you for salvation to begin with? You see, our lives are impacted by God's amazing grace and then he transforms us into a new creature. The last thing I want you to see is that we are chosen to be used by God. You see, God's always the initiator. He chose Saul. Let me ask you a question. As Saul is headed to Damascus, is he seeking Jesus Christ? The answer would be a big fat no. And yet he is saved. Why? Because Jesus took the initiative to bring him salvation that day because he had plans to use Saul. Likewise, whenever Ananias responds and goes and talks to Saul, he goes because the Lord chose him. You see, it's always God's work in us, choosing to use us, to empower us, to be used by him. It's never us summoning up the strength to go and be used by God. Remember what I said about Ananias earlier? When the Lord said, I need your attention, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord, pick me, choose me, I'll go. Granted, he had a little bit of a stumble along the way, but he heard the Lord's answer and it was sufficient, so he immediately obeyed Jesus, may we be like Saul, may we be like Ananias, may we be instruments in the hands of the Lord, as the prophets talk about in the Old Testament, may we be potter, uh, sorry, the pot in the hands of the potter, right? That the Lord could use us. You see, God used Ananias powerfully. Do you know how much we know about Ananias? Everything we know about him we read just a moment ago. We don't know anything about his life before this or after this. Ananias was not an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus, but not an apostle. Ananias most likely was not even a deacon. He was just an average Christian. But here's the deal, guys. God chose to use Ananias to be a pivotal instrument in the life of Saul, who becomes the most well-known Christian that wrote a third of the New Testament that went on missionary journeys to share the gospel around the world that radically changed everything. 
because Ananias was a vessel that God chose to use. You want to hear something else pretty cool? Like the Holy Spirit came into Saul because of what God's work was doing, but he did it by the laying on of hands of Ananias. Ananias was not an apostle. He had no apostolic authority, and yet as a follower of Jesus, God chose to use him so that the Holy Spirit would come into the life of Saul. What an amazing testimony that Ananias has. It's not about Ananias. It's about the work that Jesus wanted to do in and through Ananias, and the same thing is true for me and you. It's not about whether you're on the stage or not on the stage. It's not whether you're out in the spotlight or behind the spotlight. It's not whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's not whether you're a preacher or a housewife. It's not whether you're a business owner or whether you're a missionary. It's about all of us choosing to be used by the Lord because it's his work, his initiation in us, and us being open vessels for him to be to, to use. You see, God can and will use anyone whom he chooses. Look at verse 15. Saul was a chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. As we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to see that God did that very thing. That God used Saul to take the gospel to all people, to all types of people, because God chooses us. Whenever we trust in Jesus for our salvation, he chooses us not only for salvation, but also for mission. And that mission is to proclaim his name to the end of the earth. So while on one hand there is something special about Saul because he became an important apostle to share the gospel around the world. On the other hand, there's not anything unusual about his call, because all of us are called for salvation and for mission. And so just as Saul did, we should go out and share the good news. But here's the deal. All too many Christians sit around and pontificate and discuss the weightier matters of theology and doctrine and this aspect and that aspect. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but we're too busy discussing the theology of Scripture and never actually living it out. We're called not only to study and understand the theology of God's Word, but also to then live it out, to be a, a living a life on mission for Him. My question for you is, is God using you for His purpose? If we are chosen to be used by God, then are you being used for God's purpose by him? And if not, why not? You see, God's going to use us. He wants to use us in our everyday lives. He wants to use us in the way we serve in our community. He wants to use us in the way that we serve within our church family. You heard a moment ago, there's lots of ways to serve right now. Lots of opportunities with the BSM and with uh, Twin City Missions and, and with um, uh, oh, Hope Pregnancy Center. There's all kinds of ways to serve. There's all kinds of ways to serve in our church family as well. And all of those things that we're doing are for the purpose of making disciples and make disciples. So this morning, we've looked at the life of Saul. And in Saul's life, we see that he is changed radically because of his encounter with the living Christ and that Jesus initiates his work in him. We see that he's filled with the Holy Spirit so that he is saved and then living life on mission. We see that he's an instrument being used by the Lord, that he's filled with God's grace and God's goodness and the Holy Spirit, and his life has been radically transformed for the glory of God. My question for all of us, is can similar words be said about us? 
Have you experienced God's amazing grace? Has it transformed you into a new person? And are you being used for his glory and for his purpose? This morning, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And after the prayer is over with, there'll be some guys with offering plates, and they'll be passing those offering plates, and you can drop your offering in there and or your connection card. If there's a spiritual decision you need to make to trust in Jesus as your Savior, to join the church, to be baptized, to begin to serve, whatever the Lord's doing in your life, then you can use that connection card, jot that down, and drop it in the offering plate. You also can come and pray with me, because while we're singing, I'll be here at the front, and you can come pray with me. You can share with me any spiritual decision that's going on in your life. You can pray at your seat, you can pray at the altar, but my encouragement to all of us is this, that we would experience God this morning and that our lives be altered for the good and for his glory because of it. Let me pray for us.